Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 517 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things NXT and AEW. NXT kind of just dipping its toe into the build for deadline coming up about a month from now in December. Meanwhile, AEW is full go towards full gear, which is coming down on November 18th. So a lot to talk about on today's show as there normally is here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Before we get into all of it, allow me to kick off the show as we traditionally do with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. Please remember to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read that live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also the place where you can send us DMs or tweets with questions and comments that we will read right here live on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps of TV shows, as well as exclusive news posts every single week. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, as noted, we have NXT and AEW to talk about on today's show. Thankfully for a change, AEW is down to five hours of programming this week, all pretty straightforward. NXT just had its normal show, but there was a big news item that came out with NXT. We discussed it at the end of Tuesday's podcast with myself and Vintage Chris Vanini. So if you missed that conversation, there are timestamps in those episode descriptions, just like there are for this Thursday episode. And you can jump to the part where we had the talk about NXT moving to the CW on a five-year deal beginning in the fall of 2024. So NXT going to broadcast television, certainly massive news. I don't have much else to say on today's show about it because we already had the conversation on Tuesday. The one thing I did want to backtrack a little bit is I was discussing the fact that the CW is in more homes than USA Network. And my immediate assumption was, well, clearly NXT, if it's already you know pretty much averaging in the 700,000 viewer mark, sometimes they get up to 800,000 viewers on the CW broadcast television with more potential viewers they should be able to hit a million you know, viewers on a pretty consistent basis. What I didn't really take into context, and I should have before I said that, is while the CW is indeed a broadcast station that you can get with a simple antenna, it is not necessarily a highly watched broadcast station. A lot of people have pointed to, since this deal uh, was consummated, the fact that NXT, if it was on the CW, would basically be its highest rated program. And that USA Network does better ratings on average than the CW does. Well, that's both true and it isn't true. If you took WWE off USA Network, then its ratings on average would be far lower than the CW. WWE is what boosts up 
USA Network and has, which is why they maintain their relationship with the company and why even though they decided not to renew Raw, they're getting SmackDown instead, they're still getting a two-hour WWE program every single week because they want to keep themselves afloat in that regard. Adding NXT to the CW brings in a show that is higher rated than many of the things they already have on their network. That's the exact point of adding NXT. So to say off the jump that, oh, clearly they're going to do a million viewers consistently, that was incorrect for me to just kind of make that assumption. However, the idea should be that when NXT moves over there, after a week or two, when fans get acclimated to it, they fix their DVRs, all the things that need to get changed get changed. There are enough people who have access to that station where as long as the show maintains its quality, the ratings in theory should continue to go up and being able to approach and hit a million viewers should become a far greater likelihood than it currently is now on USA Network, where they do seem relatively capped in that 800,000 space, largely also because let's not forget, it is not the main brand in WWE, it is the third brand. So I did just want to kind of take a step back. It is still a big deal for NXT. It's still a great deal from WWE, it seems like. Uh, we also did not discuss financials, and we don't know those you know, for sure, but it's been reported that NXT was getting somewhere around 15 to 20 million per year from USA Network. It was considered an add-on to Raw. With them moving to the CW, reports are that that fee has doubled, if not more. So you're looking somewhere in the range of 30 to 40 million per year for NXT. And I believe right now, if memory serves, AEW is getting 50 million for Dynamite. Certainly that is going to increase when they get their new deal in 2024. How much that increases, we don't know. AEW is looking for a five-year, $500 million deal, so $100 million per year. A lot of people don't think they're going to get that. Whether they do or not remains to be seen. But for NXT to be able to pull in, you know, potentially $40 million a year on this type of deal, huge for WWE, huge for that brand. And it just kind of speaks to how consistent the quality of that show has been, especially since Shawn Michaels uh, took over creative control and since they moved on from 2.0 to this new white and gold NXT or whatever exactly you want to call it. So we do have a lot to talk about on today's show, NXT and AEW. There will be timestamps in the episode description, as I mentioned a moment ago. We are going to start with NXT. We're going to move to AEW after the fact. And generally on this show, we do not spend a lot of time talking about ratings. And I know I say that, and then I eventually go into a ratings conversation. Uh, but as we're taping this show, ratings are about to come out for AEW Dynamite. So between the breakdown of both shows, I'll probably spend just a couple minutes discussing the ratings for this week, primarily because NXT put up a real impressive rating on Tuesday, which was election night. And I want to mention that, and then we'll be able to look at that in context potentially of AEW's rating for Dynamite on Wednesday. So with that said, we're going to kick things off with NXT and then spend a lot of time talking about AEW, including their big overarching storyline in the second half of today's show. Uh, Carmelo Hayes backstage said his reaction last week when Trick Williams returned was just shock that he had come back. He repeated into the camera that he didn't attack Trick and said Williams was listening to the wrong people. Melo said he wanted to talk face-to-face -face because they're always going to be Trick Melo gang and that's what they need to do. Interesting was that Hayes didn't show any anger about Williams disrupting the match and costing him the title, pretty much. Mello then later called out Trick to talk in the main event segment. Williams charged down. 
Hayes cut him off saying he understands why he's upset. Sometimes shit happens. Mello said he put him on and without Trick, there's no Mello. Trick answered that he's put Mello first for years and he's shared that success with him. He's been happy to do it, but it's time for him to get the ball and take the shots with Hayes getting his back for a change. Mello kept kind of cutting him off as he tried to ask the main question. Trick said he put his heart and soul into helping Hayes. Even if Mello didn't attack him, he wasn't there like Williams always had been to help him. Mello was focused on Trick saying he didn't see who attacked him, which Williams noticed, and he eventually asked him straight up, were you the one who attacked me? Hayes was right about to answer. He's on the precipice of doing it when suddenly Lexus King interrupted with the guys telling him, mind your own business. King got in Williams' grill demanding that he say that he thinks Mello basically attacked him. Trick was done with that. He swung at him. Lexus backed up. Mello took a haymaker to the face. Trick picked up Mello after, but Hayes was pissed, staring into the camera, grimacing with his face as NXT ended. And my immediate note there is Mello was overacting to a significant, unnecessary degree. As I've said before, interesting that Mello was largely unconcerned about losing the title match. Beyond that, Trick stance, it didn't make much sense because he was the one who told Mello for months, I want to do this on my own. And it seemed like Hayes supported him in doing that. So it was just a bit uneven in that regard. Mello should have said, hey, you told me this is what you wanted. And then Trick could have said, sure, I want to be able to have my own success. But if something is going to happen to me, then I want you to come and have my back. And you didn't do that. You were okay still wrestling the match. You should have been more concerned about me. As we speculated, Lexus being the one who attacked Trick makes a lot of sense. But now Trick has stood up to Mello and punched him, which could lead to a heel turn from Hayes for a completely different reason. So they successfully followed up on last week's cliffhanger and they left another cliffhanger for this week. That's strong creative. The question is going to be the payoff though. If Hayes turns and we get Trick Mello at deadline, I'm not sure I'd like that as much as Trick Mello fighting for mutual respect as baby faces and friends at odds with each other. But it does seem clear that we're probably getting that match one way or another. So we're going to see how it goes. And regarding King, the promo was immensely corny, poorly acted. His positioning in the ring for that final haymaker moment, it wasn't bad, but it certainly wasn't as good as it needed to be. He wasn't between them as much as he should have been. He's still finding his footing. I think a lot of people forget this is still developmental. And when you bring someone like Brian Pillman Jr. in, who straight up failed at another company, he did. He did not work out in AEW. I don't really think AEW gave him a chance to succeed, but he certainly did not succeed on his own or develop his own character or anything like that. They are now trying to do something with him. He has to not just learn, but he has to unlearn a lot of stuff. Is it going to work out? I don't know. There's people in NXT where they get a little time and you see it rub off on them and they just skyrocket. And there's others. A good example is Cameron Grimes, who was a little bit rough at, at first, put it all together, skyrocketed to the top of NXT. And then there's others like Avon Wagner. We'll talk about him a little bit later, where they get chance after chance, storyline after storyline. Maybe they improve in the ring. Maybe they don't. But from a character standpoint, from an acting standpoint, there's not just that there, the, the it that they need. Let me play the sound drop because I don't get many opportunities to do it. The it that they need to truly get over and stand on their own as 
like the term or not, a WWE superstar. So with Lexus, it is fair to criticize him. I just did. But it is not fair to say, oh, he's never going to make it. He sucks and whatever. He's literally in developmental and he's been there for three weeks. And I think this is the second promo that he's ever cut. So give him some time. We can revisit six months from now. If he's just as bad then as he is now, it'll be pretty obvious that, you know, his long-term success in WWE probably would not pan out. But again, we're just getting started. Lyra Valkyria celebrated her title win while getting You Deserve It chance. She put over Becky Lynch for living up to her expectations and being a legend. As she continued with her mission statement, Zia Lee entered through the crowd, really proud of taking out Lynch, promising to take Valkyria's title. A security guard got between them, got knocked out with her roundhouse kick. They jawed at each other, the women did, with Lyra seemingly accepting the challenge. This was a bit up and down, but Zaya entering the arena the way she did in street clothes, she looked super badass. And the match obviously makes perfect sense. I wish it was a bit stronger on Lyra's part in terms of the promo, but still a solid segment to help build her character and set up the first title defense. Wesley was clowning backstage, excited to be back. He said his focus was on taking down Dominic Mysterio and regaining the North American title. Baron Corbin interrupted, talking shit about Wes leaving for months, coming back, and demanding a title match. Obviously, that led to them wanting to fight each other, with Wes adding Corbin to his list of goals coming up. I'm still hoping that there's a turn or some type of character work here for Wesley, because it's really odd that he was so frustrated and angry and down in the dumps that he went so far as to leave NXT, only to now return and revert right back to the happy-go-lucky character that he was before. We either need an explanation of why that happened, he got to see family and friends, reset his priorities, got his mind right, something like that, or we need to see Wes snap sooner than later, where he's putting on this facade to try to like force himself back into that role, but he's not able to maintain it. It has to be one of those two, otherwise this character change back to what he used to be doesn't really make any sense. Ilya Dragunov in a promo package said he was drained by the trilogy with Mello, but Corbin has now forced him to turn his attention to him and put him in his sights. Dragunov said he's a different animal now as champion, and the only person who can slay the dragon is the dragon himself. Corbin was shown watching this backstage. Two babyface tag teams came up. Corbin said they'd never be anybody if something like that video bothered them. While I still believe that Corbin needs more of a dramatic uh, character change, his confidence level, what he has been showing like being able to puff out his chest and speak with authority, that is refreshing and is a huge improvement on him as a character and as an actor. Ilya's promo was terrific. It carried this entire thing. Anytime you get Dragunov with a mic or Dragunov staring into the camera, he delivers. Von Wagner fought Braun Breaker in a rivalry match and NXT referee, I believe his name is Adrian, uh, came out of Shawn Michaels' office telling cameras that HBK gave him full discretion in the match given the history of the wrestlers. Breaker backstage promised to desecrate whatever is left of Wagner's corpse. Vaughn then pulled off a beanie to reveal a scar as he was walking to the ring, but the scar was just like a line buzzed into his head with a razor, so it was pretty funny. Uh, Breaker beat his ass early and put in the Steiner recliner. Mr. Stone grabbed a chair to help outside, distracting the referee as Braun low-blowed Vaughn. Then Breaker lifted Stone with Wagner saving him only to throw Stone out of the way and eat a spear at ringside. Breaker then rolled him inside, hit a second spear, and got the one, two, three. Stone hit him with a chair after the bell, which Braun actually sold a little bit. Outside, Wagner saved Stone from getting his ass kicked and powerbombed Breaker through the announce table with Stone excited that Wagner finished the job. Then the faces hugged to end it. Commentary said that 
you know, table move meant more than victory. And Stone, I think, later said they lost the battle, but they won the war because he was able to take Breaker out with the table. Uh, no, the dub is what matters because it's a competition. You don't get a moral victory because you put someone through a table after you lost a match clean. I get the sentiment, but this did nothing for me. As I've said before, they gotta stop trying to make Von Wagner happen. It's not gonna happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. I don't know what to do with this guy. Usually I have answers. You guys know, hey, go do this, go do that. Maybe he could be a big man doing comedy work as part of a faction. Like he's capable in the ring, but that's not what makes a superstar. This is one of those projects I just do not understand. Like the best he could possibly be is like the Jake Hager role in JAS, but for a faction in NXT. And is that someone that you want to spend this much time trying to build up and rebuild over and over again? I know that his father was a wrestler and there may be some sentiment there. For me, it doesn't work. I'm glad Braun won because any other result would have been ridiculous. And ultimately, it was a good segment. The match was fine. The post-match was hot. The fans loved it. No hate there. But just for me, as someone who's watching week to week, I don't need to see any more Von Wagner. I just don't. Fallon Henley fought Tiffany Stratton in the Women's Iron Survivor Qualifier, the first one. Stratton did something I've never seen before. We actually tweeted this video. She rolled through a crossbody after catching Henley in her arms, ran her body Henleys between the top and middle rope, and just dropped her back first straight on the floor. It looked awesome, but ouch. She also had a sit-down spinebuster, which I really like. Henley avoided prettiest moonsault ever, but Stratton ran into the middle turnbuckle, chop-locked her injured knee, and then hit prettiest moonsault ever to qualify for deadline. Both were impressive here. Henley proved that she can become an extremely strong B-side, and Stratton starred throughout. She looked even smoother here than she did as champion. Damn fine match, bell to bell. We got the right winner. I do hope Henley gets into this match as like a second chance qualifier in the future. I hope they do like the three individual matches and then the triple threat at the end for the last qualifier. She really should be in this match. I'm trying to think of some of the more experienced women in NXT, and I don't know that you have five or four that should be in the match over her. Later backstage, Kiana James congratulated Stratton for qualifying, saying she was next to qualify and they had to prevent Roxanne Perez from winning again. They agreed that they're carrying the entire women's division and can't let anyone new or established knock them off their perch at the top. When James left, Stratton admitted to herself that she actually didn't mind Kiana. They play really well off one another. They'd be a great tag team if the opportunity presents itself. It seems like they might've been setting that up given they mentioned Roxy and Fallon as people they don't like, so you could see that being a tag team match. This goes back to what I was talking about on Tuesday's show with Shayna Baszler and Zoe Stark. You build these bonus women's tag teams by having singles develop friendships, yet they maintain their individual goals. You saw that transpire exactly in this conversation between them. Now, during that segment, we saw Boa and Dante Chen talking again in the background. Boa was still in his full face paint. When Chen emerged from like behind a wall, some of that face paint had taken over, I'd say about one third of his face. Just something to note going forward. It seems pretty obvious they're going to turn them into a tag team. Tyler Bate fought Dijak in the men's Iron Survivor qualifier. Bate got a promo package saying he was done being propped up by his past accomplishments. Dijak got one as well. He said he would do what's necessary to advance. Bate got chucked over the barricade. Then he came back with a real impressive fisherman style superplex. 
After two bop and bangs, Dijak came back with high justice. Bate did the helicopter slam. They dodged and countered a bunch until Bate hit a rebound lariat. Bate then tried to take Dijak off the top with a full release suplex, but Dijak landed on his feet and booted Bate in the head. Bate avoided feast your eyes, but Dijak was too big for Tyler Driver 97. Bate tried attacking him off the ropes, only to get caught on Dijak's shoulders for feast your eyes and the deadline qualification. I gotta tell you, to my utter surprise, not that I don't think they can go, but this was a straight up banger. Fun clash of styles between them, big guy, small guy, but big athletic guy is really the key to the entire thing. I went 3.75 stars on a B plus. It would have been great to see Bait in this Iron Survivor qualifier, but Dijak was definitely the right winner. And he's significantly impressed here with his athleticism and his ring work. And yeah, just like I said a moment ago about Fallon Henley, if they do a last chance qualifier, Bait might be the perfect person to join this match. But there are more men on the brand right now that makes sense in Iron Survivor than there are women. So I don't know that he's necessarily gonna get that second chance. Noam Dar fought Akira Tozawa for the Heritage Cup. All of Alpha Academy was out making the sides even. Tozawa distracted himself with the cup for no reason whatsoever in the first round. He missed a fall opportunity because of that. Dar got a roll up 30 seconds into round two. Then he cheap shot at Tozawa immediately after the fall with a Superman punch. He did that also at the end of round three, which was a draw. Tozawa went on a run with two tope suicidas and countered into Chad Gable's ankle lock submission to tie it 1-1 after round four. Tozawa then hit two haluva kicks and a high angle suplex for a false finish. Tozawa countered a knee bar into a second deadlift German suplex, and he hit trouble in paradise as well. But Lash Legend pulled Dar out of the ring to avoid Tozawa's flying senton finisher. He came back with the Nova Roller, Noam did, for the win, two to one. For some reason, Everyone from Alpha Academy was distracted simultaneously and no one wanted to get involved in that final moment, which was really dumb. Um, but they did go after Oro Mensa after the bell. He was the one who distracted during the finish. I couldn't help but be disappointed here because Tazawa was legitimately awesome, but the finish was kind of lackluster. The match though, it started NXT real hot. The fans were all in with Tozawa and his profile was once again raised coming out of it. I had this one at 3.5 stars and a B, and I should mention I also had Henley and Stratton at that as well. No A matches uh, this individual night on NXT, but three high B, B-plus matches. Real solid stuff. We just discussed all of them. Uh, Otis fought Drew Gulak. So the Academy assured Tozawa they would be back in NXT next week to appear on Supernova Sessions, presumably ahead of a six-man match or an eight-person match they're going to have. Gulak and his crew pulled up, saying that Gable has lowered himself and forgotten that he has serious talent. Otis got into it with them, and that led to this match. So Otis was over like Rover, and this was an absolute blast, with Gulak selling his ass off. The finish was Otis breaking Gulak in half with an individual, like, toss powerbomb. He threw him in the air, caught him on his shoulders, and powerbombed him immediately. It was incredible. I'm not exaggerating when I say I honestly believe this was my favorite Otis match. Like, that's how good it was. It didn't even go that long. It was probably like four and a half minutes, but I loved it. And I know he cannot do that finish with everyone, but anytime you wrestle with someone smaller, I would like that, like, personal toss powerbomb to be his finisher. Great. JC Jane was muttering to herself at Chase U about Andre Chase not getting their backs last week. When some presumed Italians came in looking for Chase, Jane took documents from them and was floored at whatever she read. Chase came in upset that she took them, saying she didn't want to get involved in any of that. Then they came up with a cover story to cancel class, 
and he read the documents to himself only to immediately get depressed when he saw what they were. It was really cool to see Chase U take on an entirely different tone than normal. I also like that Thea Hale has grown up, yet all four of them are now interacting as peers rather than JC like fully pulling Thea away from the university. Also notable was they were in a different or a new classroom. So either they changed the set or they were just giving us a second look at another class, which was pretty cool in either direction. Brawling Brutes got a video package where they were dressed in hats and wool coats saying they weren't unlike out the mud, just that their rough upbringing was different because it was in a different country and they actually have principles. It was nice to see these guys like standing on their own, cutting a promo without Seamus. I do wonder what exactly is going on with Seamus that he's been gone for this long, but it's great the Brutes are being utilized consistently on two different shows. Plus, Butch getting opportunities to speak and act normally is only a positive when he eventually goes single. Lola Vice celebrated her breakout tournament win backstage in the locker room with Kalani Jordan confronting her and Electra Lopez for cheating in that match. Ariana Grace kept trying to spout typical beauty queen lines to calm them down. Then Roxanne Perez hopped in warning Vice not to make enemies out of the locker room because that doesn't guarantee a title win. Fun segment, Grace absolutely stole it from a comedic standpoint. This led to a tag team match between the four with Grace cutting another quick beauty queen type of promo before the bell. So Perez and Jordan against Vice and Lopez. Roxanne hit Pop Rocks on Lopez, then took out Vice with a tope suicida, holding her down at ringside as Kalani hit the split leg moonsault on Lopez for the win. Grace then announced their victory, only to get attacked from behind by Carmen Petrovic, who was just sick of hearing her speak. Kalani really showed out in this match. I've said this before. Every time she gets in the ring, she noticeably improves. Every single time. It's absolutely wild. I've never seen anything like that before. Perez was obviously great as usual. Um, the match was fine. It wasn't anything special, but I was just impressed with Kalani. And last, Joe Gacy cut another hand cam promo. This time he was in the street and the video was blurry. He talked about hearing voices and being in his own personal hell. And maybe now he finally knows what he needs to do. Like I said last week, this does seem to be the best and tightest version of this character, which is now in its third incarnation. Whether it hits, that still remains to be seen. But I guess it's fair to say so far so good. It's just for me, the jury is still out on Joe Gacy. And that about wraps up NXT this week. As noted, they are still a few weeks out from deadline, so they're just getting started building all the matches for that show. It does seem like Ilya Dragunov and Baron Corbin will be one of those matches, almost undoubtedly. Lyra Valkyria, I have to imagine the Zia Lee match will be on TV preceding deadline, but possibly they put it on there. I don't necessarily know who else would step up as her most immediate challenger if it's not Zaya, but that remains to be seen. That show will also have the two Iron Survivor matches. It makes sense, potentially. Dominic Mysterio against Wes Lee for the North American title and possibly Trick Williams against Carmelo Hayes. That's your card. I mean, I don't know that that's what they're going to do, but to me, that would make a lot of sense to be the card for that show. So it'll be really interesting. Maybe there's a situation where we don't get Trick and Mello and both of them are actually in the Iron Survivor match. That would be cool. Uh, maybe that leads to Trick winning or if their feud gets bubbled up a little bit more due to their antics in that match. A lot of different directions to go. But yeah, we've got a couple weeks left for that and we will break down that card when the time comes, as always, with an ultimate preview. Now, real quick, as I mentioned, I briefly wanted to discuss NXT ratings just before we move on. NXT on Tuesday pulled in 794,000 viewers and a 0.26 demo. That's 18 through 24. 
That made it number one on cable television, even above election night coverage on CNN. Now, this election, for those of you who don't live in the United States, this is not the big election where obviously it's presidents and governors and you know uh, state representatives and Senate. There are some of those potentially that are part of this, but those are all special elections for the most part. This is more of the county and, and sometimes state politics, this particular election night. Nevertheless, it was still big news here in the United States. And for NXT to pull in 794,000 viewers, let's remember with no Becky Lynch, no Dominic Mysterio, no Rhea Ripley, and no main roster stars advertised other than Alpha Academy, which all respect to them, I don't necessarily think they're draws, quote unquote, at least compared to, you know, Becky Lynch, Rhea Ripley, and Dominic Mysterio. For them to pull in 794,000 is kind of a stunner. And the 0.26 demo, it wasn't that long ago that NXT was doing half of that, 0.12, 0.13. Now they're at 0.26, not having major stars on the show. It is just a phenomenal rating. That tied their highest demo since August 2020. So you're talking about the second highest demo that they've had in a three-year period. Absolutely wild stuff. So when we discuss NXT going over to the CW and propping up that channel's ratings, despite it already being on broadcast, that's what we're talking about. If you take NXT and put it over there, and the CW is also adding, or it already has started airing, inside the NFL, and it has NASCAR, and it has ACC football and basketball, they're trying to make that a sports station. And if people begin actually tuning into it, just naturally, that is where the NXT rating has the opportunity to go up. So a real impressive rating from NXT, more impressive than many of the high ratings that they've done recently, again, because it did not include Becky or Dom or Rhea or any other stars coming down that are, you know, not normally on that show. So again, the exception being Alpha Academy, but nevertheless, uh, that's why that rating is so impressive. That's why I wanted to mention it here. And literally, as I just finished saying that about NXT, I refreshed my page. The AEW Dynamite ratings are out as well, so we might as well just briefly talk about them here. 804,000 viewers and a 0.27 on Wednesday. Now, because it was election night, NXT did not have NBA competition. AEW did have uh, competition. In fact, they went directly against, I believe it was, the New York Knicks and the San Antonio Spurs was last night with Vector Wembenyana having his debut in Madison Square Garden. So a big game, not an enormous game, but a big game. And they did have that competition. However, let's just be very clear about what we talked about. AEW's number one show did 8,000 viewers and one-tenth of a demo rating higher than NXT, meaning those were basically the exact same rating for Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And for NXT to be doing those kinds of numbers, even though it's not head-to-head, it's not a win-or-lose situation, but to, for NXT to be doing those kinds of numbers when AEW is doing these kinds of numbers, it really puts into context how well that developmental brand has, I'm trying to think of another word, developed uh, over the last six months or so under Shawn Michaels. Huge credit to them. So with that, let's move over to AEW. Quick overview. I thought the three middle segments on Dynamite this past Wednesday were the best work AEW did all week long. It almost felt like someone else booked those segments plus the main event, I guess you could say as well, as opposed to whoever put together the other four hours of AEW television this week. 
and Dynamite individually on Wednesday was probably the best single AEW TV show they have put on in a pretty good while. It still had its problems, but it was a huge improvement over what they've been doing recently, largely due to the middle part that I was just mentioning. But Rampage and Collision this week were, I gotta be honest, excruciating. There was a great match on Rampage. Collision was a total throwaway for me. Um, Dynamite, though, on Wednesday was quite enjoyable. And I was glad that I watched it live. I didn't even watch it a little bit delayed. Sometimes I'm 15, 20 minutes late getting into the show on Wednesday nights. But on this one, I was there from the beginning and it was totally worthwhile. So as always, we're gonna break down Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage all together based on storyline. And we're gonna start off with a lot of segments that we're going to discuss as we get into this overall main MJF storyline that is dominating television right now. So we'll start with Rampage, where Trent Beretta fought Daniel Garcia. This main evented, and AEW has gone away from those dual promos with Mark Henry. Uh, now he just introduces a video package before the match. Garcia danced and hit a pile driver. Then he tapped him out with a crossface. Garcia said after the bell that it was his first singles match in six months, and the way to jump the line is to win a title. So he called out MJF saying, a lot of people are circling him. He wants the title more than any of them. He caught himself from nearly calling himself a professional wrestler and then danced again. There was a quick video package on collision, but MJF wasn't even on camera for it. So Garcia, he's not in the JAS anymore. He's not with Chris Jericho anymore, but he still can't call himself a professional wrestler. That didn't really track to me. I liked his promo from a delivery standpoint, real solid. The concept was ridiculous though. The guy hasn't wrestled singles in six months, according to him. So he should get a title match, not for any title, but literally the top title because he wants to jump the line. That's not using the title to jump the line. That's jumping the line for no reason and getting a title match. This was clearly just an excuse to book a match for Dynamite as opposed to a storyline to build a match. And the fact that nothing happened coming out of it involving Garcia, spoiler alert, means that that was indeed the case. He's got to say something if he's going to fight MJF. Like that had to be their thought process. He's got to say something. He might as well say this. And therefore, this was a paradigm of exactly what is wrong with AEW creative in many aspects, not across the board, but in many aspects. On Collision, MJF caught an incredibly passionate promo after being pinned by Jay White saying, White is nobody compared to him and couldn't measure up to him in or out of the ring. Bullet Club Gold boosted White backstage as well, with White basically ranting about nothing, saying he was missing collision but would be on dynamite. MJF felt over the top in this promo. White answering provided no value. Then White was backstage on dynamite. He made fun of MJF for worrying about Google Trends in his prior promo, which really was a ridiculous line, saying now that they're actually being compared head to head, it is very clear J-A-Y is better than MJF. Again, this was basically nothing new or notable other than just getting white on TV. So staying with Collision, uh, the Kingdom beat something called The Crucible in 90 seconds. Roderick Strong jumped out of his wheelchair to put a pump knee on someone before grabbing his neck and rolling back into the chair. That was funny, don't get me wrong. But the fact that this was actually a match on AEW's number two show is a major problem because rightfully, no one gave a single shit about this. So let's move to Dynamite, where there was an AEW title match, MJF against Garcia, just because he asked to jump the line. Adam Cole FaceTimed MJF to tell him that he needs to accept Samoa Joe's offer to get his back at full gear. Garcia and 2.0 came up talking shit. MJF basically said, I'm going to give you a chance to prove that your talent is true and all you need is opportunity. 
MJF asked if he was getting the sports entertainer or the professional wrestler. And Garcia said, tonight, I'll be the professional wrestler. Then Strong and Kingdom rolled up, insisting that MJF was the devil with Cole hanging up on them. And Strong saying he'd remind everyone who the hell he is. This was all over the place, but a solid enough cold open to get into the title match, which started the show. MJF worked Garcia's arm throughout. Garcia avoided Panama Sunrise and took out MJF's knees before hitting a one-arm pile driver, putting him in Dragon Tamer. As he had him in Dragon Tamer, the champion, in a submission move, Garcia starts dancing and MJF counters him into Salt of the Earth and gets the submission win. MJF then looked into the camera and said, pretty good, basically giving Garcia props off mic after the bell. 2.0 twice refused to let Garcia shake MJF's hand, so MJF screamed at him for following them, and that was pretty much it. So Garcia has this huge opportunity. He claims, not only am I going to win this match, but tonight I'm a professional wrestler again. Yet he still does the dumb dance twice in the match, including while having the champion in a submission hold. And then he loses seconds later by tapping out. That's just shit match agency. It just is. The work here was solid because both of these guys can go. I was pleased that this was not overly long and that MJF won with his secondary finisher, the submission move, made him look strong as champion. That was a positive. But again, some of the agency and the creator for this one week feud, it really did just come across as dumb. On Rampage, the Guns beat Christopher Daniels and Matt Seidel with 310 to Yuma in under five minutes. They said they'd win the ROH titles at full gear, immensely basic waste of time. Then on Dynamite, they squashed the Bollywood boys in seconds with their finisher. The Guns called MJF an embarrassment for only defending the titles once and again said they would win the titles. MJF was watching backstage, so Joe walked up and he dipped out. These segments with the Guns, for me, just straight up excruciating. If you want them to look like legitimate challengers, have them have one match against a legitimate team that goes eight to 10 minutes and have them win. These squashes over Daniels and Seidel and the Bollywood boys don't accomplish shit. On Collision, Mark Briscoe and Naturally Limitless beat Kip Sabian and the Workhorsemen in under five minutes. The best and most entertaining part of this by far was Briscoe's backstage promo with FTR. The fact that Keith Lee is still teaming up with Dustin Rhodes is absolutely ridiculous, as is the fact that this match was booked thinking anything would come out of it. Later backstage, Briscoe was angry that White was carrying around a title he didn't own and challenged him to put his championship opportunity on the line against him. Briscoe getting such an opportunity after his first match back made it clear that this was, again, just a promo to excuse a match booking, just like we discussed with Garcia and MJF. Also on Collision, Samoa Joe backstage said he hadn't received an answer to his offer from MJF, and he's proud of being the longest reigning ROH TV champion because he's beaten everyone put in front of him. Keith pointed out that he hasn't been in front of him yet, and a challenge was set for Wednesday. See, this is a simple way to legitimately build a match. Heel says something, face takes exception to it, challenges for the title. And also, it's a mid-card title, so it's okay. And now you have a notable match. This shit ain't hard. And the crowd even made audible noise of excitement seeing them together in the same frame, saying, holy shit, if these guys go at it, that's probably going to be a banger. So on Dynamite, we got an ROH TV title match, Joe against Lee, and this was exactly what you thought it would be. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. Now, unfortunately, the crowd was overly focused on trying to resurface all the meat chants from the Powerhouse Hobbs Miro match. They spent like three quarters of this match trying to get holy meat and meat forever and some of those chants going, but only a small portion of the crowd was into it because it 
wasn't appropriate really for this match, even though these were two big meaty men slapping meat, don't get that twisted. That moment on that show worked, especially the way they were banging meat in that individual match. In this one, it was more of a regular wrestling match. It wasn't appropriate. They tried to force it. For me, it didn't work. Thought it was a bad move by the crowd. Joe pulled out a knee breaker. Lee hit a great German suplex. Joe caught him with a coquina clutch with Keith struggling to escape. Eventually tapping out to the degree, or not tapping out, passing out to the degree that he even stuck his tongue out of like exasperation. He passed out. The referee called a stoppage and Joe retained the title. Definitely got what I wanted here. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> <laughs> and based on what I could tell, they reinforced those ring posts as well. There's a lot of beef out here. That wasn't it. <laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beef's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. There it is. I did think it would be better than it was bell to bell to a degree, but it's clear that Keith's athleticism has been diminished upon his return. Still extremely solid. Still part of those three great segments I mentioned that all happened consecutively on Dynamite. I'm going to go 3.5 stars and a B with four slabs of beef. Just not as great as I thought it was going to be. After the match, Joe relinquished the ROH TV title, saying he's accomplished everything he's needed to with it and is now completely focused on the AEW title, whether MJF liked it or not. Now, you certainly do not want someone going after a world title to lose a mid-card title before they get that opportunity. But there are ways to get out of it, as we see in WWE all the time. A triple threat, a fatal four-way, they get injured, myriad different ways. And Keith would have made a great champion had they just added someone else to this match to take the fall. He pins them, Joe loses the title, no sweat off his back. I guess it's possible that Joe wins the AEW title. But it kind of seems unlikely. Therefore, he just relinquished a title he was not forced to relinquish to fail at obtaining another one. That is not smart in kayfabe, and it's also immensely lame. Now, if he wins the AEW world title, okay, shut my mouth, good move. But it doesn't seem like with Jay White challenging and who knows what's going on with the devil, we're gonna talk about that in a moment, and Adam Cole and some of these other people, it doesn't seem like Samoa Joe is the guy that Tony Khan's gonna be putting the AEW title on, but again, maybe they do. And for anyone who says, well, what about Keith Lee when he relinquished? the North American Championship. When he did that, it came after he had won the NXT title. The other difference is unlike Joe, Keith was a babyface, and his explanation was, why should I have both titles and take up two divisions? Other people need opportunities, and that's what the North American Championship provides. So the kayfabe explanation for Joe sucked, but it was not even close to the same of what happened with Keith, but I'm willing to see what happens and if this relinquishing decision ultimately makes sense and pays off in the long run. On Dynamite, Wardlow got a video package where he said his first three years in AEW were hell, he was made to feel worthless, and it was all MJF's fault. He said his days were numbered and he wouldn't know when it would happen. MJF, meaning. This was exactly what it needed to be. I remain extremely curious to see how all these various feuds play out, but with Joe and Wardlow both going after MJF, it certainly should lead the viewer to believe that MGF retains over White. Otherwise, what's the point of those additional challengers if he won't have the title past full gear? Now, WWE did do that recently 
with Becky Lynch, but it was only one outstanding challenger, Zia Lee, and that is playing directly into a storyline where Zia is beating up Becky while simultaneously going after the NXT title that she never got an opportunity to challenge for. Here, if MJF drops the title, that's it. I mean, there, there's nothing else for all of these multiple people to do who all say they're not just focused on him, they're focused on the title. That's why I would have waited to bubble up some of these challengers unless I was doing a tournament or a number one contendership, something like that. On Dynamite, Briscoe fought White in the match that we discussed earlier. Briscoe got a promo package before this that included footage of young Switchblade and ROH. I like it when he speaks because he just comes off so damn real, kind of like Eddie Kingston, obviously a lower ceiling comparatively. These guys went at it with Briscoe surprisingly dominating for a long stretch. He had his froggy bow for a false finish. White came back with a Uranagi and a Kiwi Crusher, plus a version of John Moxley's Death Rider. He added Blade Runner at the end for the decisive win, and it was a pretty strong finishing sequence, I would say, to close the match. This also over-delivered, probably 3.5 stars and a B. Probably the best way to break it down is to say that it over-delivered. Great work across the board. Briscoe got over immensely as a big-time babyface against a despicable heel, and that was great to see as well. Now, MJF's music hit after the bell. He attacked the other BC members with his dynamite diamond ring, leaving him alone with White, who immediately dipped out of the ring with the triple B. MJF said playtime is over. He was going to live up to his promise of being the greatest AEW champion or die trying. He said White would have to kill him to beat him. And for the first time ever, he's not just fighting for himself, but Cole and all the fans who have supported him. Just as he finished saying that, the lights went out and a gang of people in black bodysuits completely laid out the acclaimed, including throwing Anthony Bowens through a fake glass window, which was really funny because they just did like a temporary office with this huge window. It was probably a four by four office with a guy, a desk and a single plant. It's like the guy's not getting any work done there. And this guy just gets thrown through the window. I'm not criticizing it. I thought it was legitimately funny, but it was so blatantly fake as well. But after that happened, after Bowens goes through the glass, the devil pops up on screen. It was the same pre-taped, you know, three second video, nothing live, nothing different than what we've seen previously. So in theory, because it was a pre-taped video we'd seen before, it could still be MJF, to, no matter where he was in the arena, he doesn't need to be there to put a mask on and do a pre-taped video. So MJF ran backstage as soon as he saw this happen to check on the acclaimed, and then Joe came up laughing that MJF is running out of friends. So obviously, strong promo from MJF after the match, as I mentioned. Maybe the first time he's actually gotten fully over White on the mic. Because a lot of the stuff he's been saying has been corny, which White has called out, like the tofu stuff. It's just dumb. And then the backstage attack was perfect. The spot through the glass window was well done. And it looked very brutal, I guess, across the board. But that brings us to the devil. And that's a conversation we need to have. Because suddenly there seems to be a lot of online speculation. I can't even believe this is the case. That the devil is CM Punk. There were a bunch of things on Dynamite that could be constituted as punk references. The one that was definitely a reference to punk was the elite segment that we're going to discuss in a minute. The broken glass here plays as much into Jack Perry as it does punk. You remember they got into the argument about Perry looking into the camera and saying real glass and how that pertained to an argument that he had with punk previously at Collision. There was also MJF telling Garcia not to listen to the veterans around him. And there was something in a John Moxley promo later about HR that could be, you know, tied to punk, I suppose. Those latter two feel like big time stretches to me. 
I'll say this. If it's punk, it would simultaneously be an all-time swerve and also an all-time idiotic business move. I highly, highly doubt it is CM Punk. So let's assume it's not. And let's remember the goal here is not just to identify the devil, but possibly everyone wearing black because that would appear to be a faction. Perry still makes a lot of sense. There's a contingent that badly wants it to be Adam Cole. And he could certainly be the leader, even if he's unable to compete legitimately because of his injury. The other option is that we've been kayfabed with the injury and he hurt his foot and maybe he fractured his ankle or had a severe high ankle sprain or something like that, but he's actually not gonna be out of action for eight months or however, however long his time was listed as. It's only two or three, in which case he theoretically could come back and wrestle. So that is a possibility and we've seen him in a leadership role of a faction before. The fact that MJF has other friends and they are the ones who got eliminated right away points to that making some sense. But if it's Cole, then how do you explain him being manipulated by Strong for weeks at his home only to actually be the devil? That does not compute at all unless we are being told that all of that, 100% of all those things we saw was a total ruse. They were game planning the entire time and they just taped those segments because they wanted to fool people. But you know, those segments weren't taped like office style where they're looking into the camera. I can't believe what's happening here. Why is Roderick Strong keeping me? Like those were all meant to be us as a third party, you know, just watching what was happening there. And for some reason, AEW got that footage, right? The other thing to consider is what Strong said earlier in the show where he went up to the camera while uh, Cole was on the video conference and was like, he's clearly the devil. Why would Strong say that MJF is clearly the devil if he knows Cole is the devil or if he himself is the devil. Let's also remember what Strong said earlier in the show, reminding people who he is. He's like, I wanna remind everyone who I am, I'm sick of this stuff. And let's also remember what Wardlow said about blindsiding MJF. It feels like this is gonna wind up being an entire faction. And it might even be like Cole, Kingdom, Strong, Wardlow, and Kyle O'Reilly. Right back to the extended undisputed era, basically. Or it could be something like Jack Perry, Wardlow, Sean Spears, and a couple others. So taking some of the members of the Pinnacle and giving them a new leader with Perry, and again, a couple other people on the back end to fill them out. The other option is that the devil is MJF, and he's been playing everyone for a fool. It could also be one of the WWE releases, those 90-day um, clauses, not they're not non-competes, but the 90 days where they get paid not to work, those are coming up very soon. So possibly Dolph Ziggler, possibly Mustafa Ali. I could see Ziggler in this role because he could play it off. Ali, not so much. I think Ali would be a great signing for AEW. I don't know that him being the devil makes the most sense. But just think about how hokey and corny MJF's promo was about doing all of this for the fans. That's not him. He might be our scumbag, he's not our friend, and he's not doing this for us, it's always about him. It's always been about him. And don't forget, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If MJF can literally convince all these people he's not the devil and actually be the devil, well, that would be the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. The truth is that AEW has created a compelling angle here, but it's not gonna matter if they don't land the plane on it. For example, if the devil is Jack Perry, and all the henchmen are nobodies who never get revealed, that's gonna be a big wet fart. If it's someone leading a new faction, and that results in them 
somewhat immediately taking the title off MJF and maybe running roughshod over the company with MJF in a huge babyface angle, then we're cooking. And if it is MJF himself, that can absolutely work as well. That's part of the reason Cole being the devil is tough if he's legitimately out for months, because that devil needs to quickly get over MJF upon his unmasking. And if Cole can't win the title, well, that sure would be an impossibility, right? What I find interesting, though, is that I am pretty sure the devil has only been in person once, and that was the attack on Jay White and Bullet Club Gold. I believe that was the last time Cole was at Dynamite. Every other time it's been on video, and obviously Cole has been on video from home. So that's just one other aspect I wanted to throw in. So like I said, credit to AEW for putting this together. I will say that in terms of critiquing it, there have been some inconsistencies, and depending who this is meant for, that's going to determine whether all the other storylines surrounding it ultimately make sense, because these are all different pieces of a puzzle, but we're going to need that final piece to know whether the picture that it shows us is one that was worth building in the first place. And one other thing of note before we move on to everything else, what we just talked about was an insane amount of AEW's five hours this week, either directly or tangentially related to MJF. Consider all of those segments that we just discussed. I would say 40% of what happened on AEW TV this week had to do either with MJF, his upcoming challengers, or the people those challengers were fighting in order to establish themselves for him. Meanwhile, We have an absolutely loaded roster with names like Kenny Omega, Chris Jericho, Hangman Page, Tony Storm, Andrade El Idolo, Miro, I could go on, all of them getting one or zero segment across five hours. But all of these other people somehow related to MJF were in three, four segments. MJF himself was in a ton. Don't get it twisted. I like that a lot of attention is being given to MJF. And I'm extremely curious to see how the devil plays out and how the multiple challenger story shakes out, maybe they're one and the same. But 40% of five hours worth of TV dedicated to one person or one storyline, it is simply too much. Even with WWE, they only did that when it was Roman Reigns as the undisputed champion, and that was one of their shows, 50% of one of their show. So that was one hour a week, not 40% of five hours, which obviously is a lot more than that. Let's move on, a lot more to talk about. On collision, Swerve Strickland fought Era Fox before the bell. Fox attacked Swerve on the ramp. Swerve hit an awesome upwards rolling power slam, plus Swerve stomp for the win. Strong 10-minute match. The storyline was clear, though they didn't really spend any time going back to remind us, which was kind of important because they haven't touched on it in a few months, but there was a story. Mogul Embassy attacked after, so FTR saved. Then Ricky Starks and Big Bill came down for a six-on-three attack. Then LFI, you know, the group of murderers from Mexico, They came down to save the faces, but refused to shake FTR's hand. And that made an eight-man match later in the show. FTR and LFI against Starks, Bill, and Gates of Agony. FTR struggled to lift Bill for Shatter Machine, but Roosh took him down with a missile dropkick. Starks countered Roosh with a spear. Dax Harwood hit Shatter Machine with Roosh, but didn't go for the cover until Roosh hit Bull's Horns for the win. He looked great. Easy MVP of the match. LFI again refused to shake FTR's hands, despite them working well together all match. Commentary put over Roosh heavily. He did just re-sign with AEW, so that's probably why they're all in with him right now, but it was a solid match across the board. After the Bell House of Black appeared on the big screen saying they're the only ones who care about FTR, they wanted to show them that their legacy is worth more than the titles they're obsessed about. Obviously, the house was in the ring when FTR turned around, so they got beat down until Blackpool Combat Club saved them 
in a low energy moment. I'm not sure what this eight man deal accomplishes exactly. Maybe there's more to the story, but you have LFI and Blackpool both helping FTR and then House of Black hates them. And then Starks and Big Bill were working but not working with House of Black, but they're also teaming with Mogul Embassy. It's kind of confused what they're doing here. On Rampage, Elio Del Vikingo fought Penta, El Zero Miedo, and Commander. Penta caught Commander trying a springboard shooting star press with Codebreaker midair. Vikingo then took out Penta with a springboard crucifix bomb, only to eat a springboard Canadian destroyer from Commander. Penta took a poison rod on the apron. Then Penta hit a combined gory bomb fear factor on the apron simultaneously, plus a twisting jackhammer inside. Vikingo then hit a 630 senton for a broken fall. Commander hit an implosion phoenix splash for another broken fall. Uh, Penta finally hit Commander with Fear Factor into Vikingo for the win. Imagine my surprise that Penta actually won this match. All in all, for the featured match on a third show that no one is watching, this made tuning in with worthwhile. 3.75 stars B+, athletic ability, the moves, top tier. Obviously, there was no selling, no match story, anything else. It had no real relevance to any storylines, but it was a match for a match's sake. A damn fun one, but still, just a match. On Dynamite, Penta fought Swerve. There was a quick backstage confrontation to build this match on Collision. Penta hit a really cool jackhammer-style Death Valley driver, plus a Canadian destroyer on the apron. Then Penta landed straight on his head after a counter sequence in the corner before eating a Swerve Stomp draped outside with his toes caught by the bottom rope. Penta countered a 450 inside by catching Swerve for an arm breaker before hitting Made in Japan. Swerve came back with a Death Valley driver, an arm breaker of his own, and another Swerve stomp. He went to untie Penta's mask after the bell, so Hangman Page ran in with a chair for three chair shots, and Deadeye, off the stage, threw a couple tables. He screamed as referees pulled him off Swerve. Now, this is my shit right here. This is what I'm talking about. First of all, the match itself undoubtedly was a banger. Four stars, A-, minus on its way to being better, but there was a lot of sloppiness in the second half. Penta losing was expected given Swerve is in the bigger program right now. Well, you know, that and the fact that Penta always loses. But regardless, Swerve benefited significantly from this match. The post-match with Hangman was exactly what it needed to be in order to continue their personal blood feud. We didn't really get that last week. We did get it this week. This really should have a stipulation added for full gear. I could see this being lights out. More of this type of stuff less of the other BS. This was one of those three segments in the middle of the show that I told you I loved on Dynamite. Another one of those was a video game style, actually it wasn't this, but it was what came after this. A video game style animation video package was narrated by Don Callis. I guess this match between all of them is gonna be promoted next week. Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho were backstage for a promo. The Young Bucks interrupted, clearly jealous at their relationship. They were offended that they came up with Golden Jets as a nickname obviously ripping that from the uh, Central Intelligence movie starring The Rock. Also, they were just pissed that Jericho and Omega were hanging out together and getting along. They were wondering what happened to the elite who actually started AEW. Jericho pointed out the Bucks haven't had Omega's back recently and said that he was just as involved starting AEW as they were. The Bucks said that they started the revolution. Jericho waltzed in and cashed a check. Jericho credited the Bucks for being the best tag team in the world, but said, he and Jericho could definitely beat them. The Bucks challenged for full gear. Jericho accepted on the condition that if they win, they get the Bucks automatic guaranteed tag team title shot. The Bucks accepted on the condition that the Golden Jets break up if the Bucks win. Omega said he didn't want to wrestle them 
But if they think he can't beat them, he's already done it twice with two different partners before. Omega said his goal was not just to beat them, but to get them to stop acting like children. And that was the reference to CM Punk, who said the EVPs of AEW acted like kids. Two great segments in a row. The Bucks are at their best when they're sniveling weasel piece of shit heels. And they did the jealousy angle really well here. They really are awful friends in kayfabe, like consistently bad. Now, who would want to be around guys like that? Nobody, including Omega, right? Jericho acting unaffected by their antics really sold that he and Omega are guys who are kind of above all the bullshit. And obviously the punk rant reference brought it home. The added stipulations took a match that I probably would have criticized for being thrown together and turned it into something that actually matters and deserves to be on full gear. So this was really well done across the board. On Dynamite, Orange Cassidy cut a promo on John Moxley, saying he certainly has not overlooked him and has been thinking about Mox ever since he beat him to a pulp. Orange said he didn't take advantage of Ray Phoenix. He picked up the pieces of a title that Mox dropped, and he was focused on beating Mox in order to feel like he's the actual international champion. Probably one of Orange's three best promos in AEW. Mox answered later, saying he wasn't after the title, but setting an example. Mox said it would be gang warfare against Orange and whoever might have his back in Los Angeles, and he may not make it to full gear, actually. Wheeler Yuta then threatened Hook. In an absolute shocker, Orange was better than Mox on the mic here. Mox kind of just rambled on. I thought Orange crushed it. On collision, Darby Allen fought Lance Archer. The match was randomly booked without a storyline, but they did cut a couple tape promos on Rampage. Darby bumped his ass off for most of this. Archer chokeslammed him in the middle of the ring, then again on the apron. That looked cool. Jake Roberts went to hit Darby with a skateboard. He got ejected. Darby then bit Archer's hand, thumbed his eyes, scratched his back on the ropes before hitting an avalanche Canadian destroyer for the win. I loved that that move finished the match and he didn't have to go back and hit the coffin drop. I saw high praise for this match. I thought it was mediocre, and that's despite me liking both guys a lot. It was mostly slow and plodding, and this finish was kind of sudden. After the bell, Roberts introduced the Righteous as part of his new crew. He could barely speak, but his talking over their entrance music actually sounded pretty cool. Archer caught a distracted Allen with Blackout to kind of end the segment. So I simultaneously love this foursome, but also recognize it's doomed from the start. Let's remember, every time Archer shows up again after an extended absence, he loses, such as he did in this match. The Righteous had that huge build. Look at these guys, they're gonna come, they're gonna take the titles off MJF. MJF beats them two on one. Now you can bet your ass with them attacking Darby, this is gonna be a six man, Sting, probably Adam Copeland with Darby, and they're gonna lose that. So they lose individually, and now you're putting them all together, and they're gonna lose together in their first match as a trio. That is not how you start a group or a faction. Just doesn't work that way. On Dynamite, Darby and Sting beat the Outrunners with a Scorpion Deathlock in a few minutes. This was a real match on AEW's main show. The gimmick was it was the first time Sting wrestled in Portland in 35 years. Fine, give him a real match, not the Outrunners. There wasn't even a post-match reason for this. Commentary announced the six-man that I theorized a moment ago, basically confirming that this brand new faction is gonna lose immediately, just like the Righteous did in their debut, just like Archer does pretty much every time he returns. On Dynamite, Akaru Shida was frustrated at Tony Storm's antics while they were doing a black and white interview slash contract signing with Shivani. Storm said that she was supposed to walk into All In as champion and she was reclaiming the spotlight for herself. I'm sure Shida has spoken before, but this was the first time I can remember hearing her speak, telling that the only time this feud got was this 60 second segment. Now that said, the segment was good, but this is the build that we're getting for it. I know that Tony's 
come and stolen the spotlight from Sheeta in past weeks, but there's no real heat between them. We got a little taste of it here, but they were relegated to 60 seconds on the entire show. Taz was fantastic after this because Shivani at the start of this segment said, we're doing this in black and white. And Taz is like, how the hell did you know it was in black and white? Tony didn't have an answer. I, I laughed at that. Uh, it's obvious that Storm is winning the title from Sheeta. It's not inherently a bad thing, but it's just crazy how little time the women get on TV, even for the top feud in the division. This could have been really, really hot and gotten the time it deserved on Dynamite. Instead, again, relegated to a really short window. Also on Dynamite, Mariah May showed up backstage as AEW's newest signing. She said Storm is the reason she wrestled in stardom and the reason she's in AEW. It was expected from the jump that she would be a groupie for Storm to take her under the wing in this gimmick, and this makes a ton of sense. May is super talented. She's a former stardom champion. Her appearance got no reaction from the crowd, and it was obvious that AEW knew that because she debuted rather unceremoniously backstage. If you contrast that, to what WWE has done for Jade Cargill, I mean, it's night and day. And look, of course, May is not Jade. She's obviously May, way better in the ring. Jade is way bigger of a name because she was prominently featured in AEW, which is an American promotion. But still, for a new signing, if you just juxtapose it, the differences are so vast. On Collision, Andrade El Idolo repeated backstage that it's his business and no one else's, yet he would give his answer to Hot and Flexible face-to-face -face next week. There wasn't anything that even prompted this, like an interaction, a second offer from Hot and Flexible, anything. Why are you bringing Andrade all the way to TV to do the exact same 15-second promo that he did last week? Why are you putting all this bullshit on Collision each week rather than focusing on this Andrade and Miro storyline that people actually care about? This is what should be getting more time on that show. Andrade should be wrestling matches against legitimate competitors, building his profile. Miro should be doing the same. I just don't understand the prioritization here. On Rampage, Ruby Soho backstage said they've been on a downward spiral since Tony Storm left the outcast. Soraya told her shut up, saying Tony would be nothing without them and Ruby is ungrateful. She wouldn't even be on TV without her. Then Soho denied Angelo Parker offering a comb to her. Daddy Magic ran him down for not being a dog against Chris Jericho last week, but Parker said not everyone is bothered by the same stuff as him. I actually liked the Ruby Soraya interaction other than the fact that Soho has been this uber confident heel for months, ever since she joined this group. So it's strange that she would be totally fine with Soraya talking down to her in that way. Clearly they're gonna feud and you would have to imagine Ruby Soho beats Soraya, but it just kind of came out of nowhere that that was their relationship when it had never been established before. On Rampage, Sky Blue beat Marina Shafir in seven minutes with Code Blue. She had the eye makeup still, but it was way more blue than black. I like her, but holy overexposure, Batman. It feels like she has wrestled on almost every episode of TV for like two months now. On Collision, we got the same backstage segment we've gotten for weeks with Sky, Chris Statlander, and Willow Nightingale. Stat praised Sky for sticking with the baby faces. Sky said that she did it for Willow, not her. What's the point of the passive aggressiveness? Like Stat already defended her title successfully against both of them. On collision, Willow fought Emi Sakura. No reason was given for this particular matchup. Willow hit a Death Valley driver at ringside, then a missile dropkick and spinebuster inside. She then hit the Dr. Bomb on her second attempt for the win in about 10 minutes. You could make an argument that this was the second best match on collision Saturday night, but it just didn't mean anything. 
On Dynamite, Red Velvet fought Julia Hart. This was Velvet's first match in a year and Hart's first in a month. No reason was given for them fighting each other. Admittedly, I did get distracted a little bit during this, the early portion of the match. But from what I saw, it was really good. Hart hit a nice moonsault to get the win and Velvet gave her some good work in like the latter stages of the match. Hart locked in Heartless after the bell because she's a heel. That led Sky out for a stare down. Stat and Willow then came down with Stat standing between them and Hart dipping out of the ring. There was a lot of staring going on between all these women. Julia's hot in terms of kayfabe and the way she's over with the crowd. Um, the Statlander TBS title reign has been horrendous. We've talked about it like many women's title reigns are in AEW. She has the title, has a bunch of random matches. None of them really mean anything. I think she only had half of one storyline for the title, and that's pretty much it. Julia Hart is one of the hottest women in AEW right now in terms of fan response, and it kind of feels like they might have Stat drop the title to her. If that match is booked for full gear, look out for that happening. On Collision, the trio's titles were on the line, the acclaimed against Dalton Castle and the boys. Preceding this was a 69-day celebration, and there were literally a six and a nine balloon for it, actually two of each. Max Caster got a gift here, which was an MJF video promo against his better judgment, saying he's starting to like the acclaimed and happy 69-day. That part was actually fun, seeing MJF do that. And of course, this played into the attack on Dynamite that we mentioned earlier. But the rest of this, as with pretty much all of these acclaimed segments recently, man, they are just idiotic, especially with the eye-rolling amount of 69 mentions. There was a pinata involved at one point, acclaimed one, another worthless title match that, again, the challengers had no reason for even being in it. I'm sorry, I'm just out on this. They've taken the acclaimed, which was exceptionally hot. And while fans are still into it, for me as a viewer, it's just completely off my radar. I don't care about it anymore. Also, the match sucked. It was like one of the worst matches of the year, like a D-level match. I have no choice here. Zero point zero. Block at zero. And lastly on Rampage, Sanjay Dutt backstage was angry that Ortiz turned down his overtures last week. They kept calling themselves the greatest faction in AEW, yet let's all remember, they still don't have a name after all of these months. Jay Lethal then guaranteed to beat Eddie Kingston for the ROH title. After they left, Ortiz walked by saying he would deal with them next week. All basic, not noteworthy, don't really have anything else here. So as I said, just to kind of recap AEW, Dynamite, exceptionally strong. The middle three segments on the show, the main event, that's my shit. The rest of what we got from AEW this week was rather lackluster, frustrating in many regards, especially Collision on Saturday. Legitimately one of the worst Collision episodes they've put out, maybe the worst now that I think about it, because the show hasn't been on that long. So Dynamite saved the week, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. And with Full Gear coming up, it seems to be a strong card already. We discussed it a little bit last week. If they can kind of keep this momentum, put on a better Collision this week, give us an equal or better Dynamite this coming Wednesday, they might actually have some momentum until Full Gear. And that would be key given, I believe that's the, it's the penultimate actually, pay-per-view of the year because they are doing World's End the last week of December. So there's going to be about five to six weeks between Full Gear and World's End. And the fact that they're shoving another pay-per-view into 2023, that's another conversation for another day. We'll talk about that probably on the ultimate preview for Full Gear. Uh, but nevertheless, AEW, like I said, a step better this week than it had been for the last couple of weeks, where I'm sure you could tell on this show, I was immensely frustrated with it. So folks, that is the full breakdown of NXT and AEW. I appreciate all of you listening to today's show. As always, 
On the way out, let me hit you with those reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show. Didn't get a chance to read any today. We'll have more next week. Don't you worry. Also, please remember. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to TV shows and special five minute audio shows, as well as exclusive news posts every week. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE show. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.